The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There's a, a pattern that seems to be present in a number of different environments that I first caught on to when I was a child. I was the kind of kid who I constantly played outside. I, I was all the time in the yard with the neighbors and friends. I feel like that's a little bit of a lost art in our video game age that our kids today find themselves in, but I would be outside all the time. And a regular occurrence would be for me to scrape up my knee or my elbows. They'd get torn up on the concrete. We used to play this game called Kill the Man with the Ball. Anybody ever played Kill the Man with the Ball? This is what guys do, okay? We played Kill the Man with the Ball, and it is exactly what it sounds like. If you have the ball, everybody's coming, and they are going to pummel you, okay? So we'd play this game, and I'd get banged up, and what would happen inevitably if I show up at home, and I've got like a cut, an open wound, I'd come home, and typically I'd, I'd go, hey, mom, you know, I got this open wound, and what would then happen is this evil dark brown bottle with a white cap would come out of the, the closet. And then I'd like recoil, like, <gasps> right? Like I'd, I'd just gasp for air because I know it's about to come. And then the cotton ball, if she's in a nice mood, and then just straight liquid if it's like, oh, this is bad, okay? So that evil liquid, hydrogen peroxide, would then be poured on my wound and it would sting so badly. And, you know, parents insist this is gonna help heal you, right? But for the kid, it's torture. Uh, and so we, you have experienced this perhaps at some time, whether it's you or your child, where the remedy for something that's gone wrong, the way to find the solution to whatever is ailing you is often a remedy that requires some pain. Often the solution, the thing that's going to make us better, is a remedy that itself stings us on the way to our experience of healing. Uh, just this past week, I've had multiple people come up to me and be like, Justin, is everything all right, man? You just don't seem like yourself. You seem kind of down. And I told them, all these different people who came up to me, like just randomly came up to me and said, you know what, there is something. About a week ago, I bit my lip. And what proceeded to happen on my lip is this sore developed. And it just got worse and worse and worse, so much so that it, it's painful to smile. And so I've just been in a sour mood this week. I just haven't smiled as much. So you're, you're very astute in your observation. I am kind of down this week. And so all sorts of people were like, hey, I know what you need to do. Here's how you fix this. I had one staff member who I will not name because I love this person, I care for them. She goes, hey, uh, pour some salt straight up on the wound. It'll hurt, but I promise it'll feel better after a little while. So I'm like, oh, okay, let's do that. And so I get some salt and I put it straight on the wound. Actually, somebody has to do it for me while I'm like bracing myself. It was torturous, terrible. And then they were like, feels better, right? Like, and I'm like, no, this is way worse. This is terrible. Then... I tried it again, and this time it started bleeding. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that. Somebody else came up to me and said, hey, no, what you need to do is salt water. Salt water. So I tried that. That is not as painful, but still didn't work to the way that they were suggesting. Finally, my wife comes home, and she's like, hey, I bought you this uh, at the store. It's this little tiny tube of ointment. If you put it on, uh, it should make it feel better. At least that's what the box says. And so I started putting that on, and every time I'd apply it, it stings. But sure enough, that's what's done the trick. And I am much better today, praise God, that I've started putting that lip. So maybe you've encountered this before where you've got an ailment or a sickness 
And the remedy that's prescribed is something that stings. It requires some pain. If you've had surgery before, a lot of times after surgery, you feel worse than when you went into surgery. And so this principle, this pattern we see in a number of different sphere, uh, spheres of our lives is something I want to talk about today. In Ezekiel chapter 37, this man named Ezekiel, a messenger sent from God, delivers a word to a people who are broken and helpless. They've experienced just a, an absolutely unimaginable trauma. They feel like their life is in despair and it's their own doing. They put themselves there. Sometimes there's things that happen to us that are outside of our control and those are difficult. Like, how did I get here? But this was their own doing. And so Ezekiel delivers a message to them and he's gonna give us in these first few verses, he's gonna give us three essential truths that we have to believe and embrace if we're gonna experience life. Not the kind of life where you just kind of make it. Not the kind of life where you're just trying to keep it day by day and just get by and survive. But the kind of life where you thrive and where you experience vibrancy and purpose and meaning and joy as God intends. Ezekiel says there's three things I want to show you in these first few verses. You have to embrace and believe, but here's the thing. The journey to experiencing life, there's some sting to it. There's a bit of pain to it. These three truths, I promise you, at least one will rub you the wrong way. At least one, because of your life experiences or your personality, you're going to hear one and be like, Psh, you're exaggerating. That might, not be, that might be true for somebody else, but not for me. You might even be offended at one of these three. And what I hope you see is that on the other end of the sting, there's incredible healing and hope and joy and purpose and so let me set up the stage. Before we jump into Ezekiel 37, let me give you a little bit of background. The people of God are in exile. This was a time period in which they had been taken out of their hometowns and forced to go into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the city. Ezekiel was somebody who lived in Jerusalem and experienced firsthand a lot of this destructiveness. And so Ezekiel basically got to witness people lose their family, families torn apart. Ezekiel saw uh, just atrocities all over. The temple, this pillar right there in the middle of Jerusalem, the most significant building in the world for God's people, he saw it destroyed, burned, and torn down. And God sends Ezekiel to deliver a message from God to his people over in exile as the people are facing oppression, as the people are being abused by their Babylonian conquerors, he goes and he delivers a word from God to them. And that's what makes up the book of Ezekiel. And we find ourselves in chapter 37, where really it's the climax of the book. It's the peak of what God is intending to communicate to Ezekiel through, through him to a hopeless and helpless situation. Here's what he says, starting in verse one. Read with me. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now let's make a couple observations about what we just read. Let's look closely. When you read the Bible, look at the details, make observations, put yourself in the scenery. What do you see? What do you hear? Right here, God, the Spirit of God leads Ezekiel down into this valley. 
So you can picture perhaps mountains on either side of you and you're down beneath and you've just gone down and somehow God has given you this vision where all you see all around you are these bones spread all across the valley. And Ezekiel notes two things that he wants us to behold. Behold is an important word in the scriptures. He says, behold, there were very many bones. There's a lot of death here. And behold, these bones are very dry. What we gather from context is that this was likely the scene of some battle. The Jewish people were very careful to bury their dead. They wouldn't just leave a bunch of bones out exposed to the sun. That would not be their practice. But what this seems to be pointing at is that some type of battle took place where God's people were defeated in such an awful and atrocious way that they were just left, bones scattered all across this valley, left for dead. And he observes and he sees just how many there are. And the language that's used in verses one and two is that God served almost like a guide. The spirit of God walking and guiding like this tour guide. Come here, Ezekiel, I want you to see these bones over here. I want you to go look at how dry and dead these bones over here. And so these bones would have been exposed to the sun, bleached because of the sun, because they were left out, would have been very brittle and fragile. So Ezekiel is observing all this and looking at it. And God is showing Ezekiel this vision because he's giving him a physical picture to a spiritual reality. The bones here in this valley, we learn later in verse 11, are a representation of the whole house of Israel. He says to Ezekiel, essentially, hey, Ezekiel, here's the condition of my people. Look at this valley full of dead, dry bones. This is what it's come to. This physical picture points to the condition of their hearts. And when you read the story of God's people historically, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you see this downward spiral where time after time they reject God. They turn their backs on him that no matter how often God pursues them and calls them to come back, they still go in their own ways. In fact, what had ended up happening was the nation of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they had become essentially just like all the, the, the nations around them to where there was no distinction. God had given them a unique identity. He gave them unique laws and commands and he designed for them to live in such a way that they were to be a city on a hill The nation was to be this example to the surrounding nations, but they looked like everybody else. They started to do what everybody else did and started to believe what everybody else believed. And as a result, they find themselves, because of their sin, spiritually dead. I want to read this to you. This is 2 Chronicles 36. This helps capture just how dire the situation was. 2 Chronicles 36 says this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So you may think, man, that sounds pretty harsh that God would allow the capital city of Jerusalem to be utterly destroyed. It seems kind of harsh that God would find purpose in causing them to go into exile where they will be oppressed, where they will be servants of this wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, sounds kind of harsh that God would do that. But don't miss what 2 Chronicles just told us, that decade after decade, God sent prophet after prophet after messenger after messenger persistently and compassionately calling them back, and they said no. They continued on in their sins, rejecting 
the call of their heavenly father to trust in him and to turn to him. And they said, we'll be our own gods. We'll live our lives however we please. And so as a result, the chronicler notes that it came to the point where there was no more remedy. So they're taken into exile, all their own doing. And so what we find ourselves in when we look at this vision of the valley of dry bones, this is not a situation where we say, oh, poor Israel. This is not one of those situations where something outside of their control, they couldn't help it. No, this was their own doing. They willingly put themselves in that place. They rejected God. God said, this is what's going to happen if you continue to rebel against me. This is where this path leads to. And so they went to the valley of dry bones, spiritually dead. So this brings us to the first truth that Ezekiel 37 calls us to believe and embrace. But I'll warn you, it stings. The first truth is this. My sin is more deadly than I think it is. My sin is more deadly than I think it is. See, sometimes we, we see our struggles and our problems and we just kind of brush out, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And God gives Ezekiel a vision and says, no, this is how big of a deal it is. This is the condition of my people. They are dead, dry bones. Now today, you'll get in your car here in a moment to drive home from church or to lunch or wherever it is that you have after this. And on one of your side mirrors, there will be this message. And I know that it'll be there because it's federally mandated by law. One of your side mirrors, at least, will say, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And the reason that it says that is because our side mirrors are designed in such a way that it gives us a broad view of what's behind us. It gives us a perspective so we can see much of what's behind us. But as a side effect to that broad, of, that broad view, it makes the objects in our mirror look smaller than they actually are. And that bend to the glass that causes those objects to look smaller, our eyes read that as though they're further than they actually are when they're actually quite close. Now, this dynamic of a mirror making things behind us, making things look smaller than they actually are, minimizing and underestimating how significant they are, this is our problem with sin. Sin is so deceptive and it's so sneaky that not only will you be tempted to come into and make a decision that is contrary to God's good design for your life, but then once you've fallen into it, the enemy, the tempter, Satan, will then convince you it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. And so what ends up happening is we do a little self-reflection and we think, oh, it's not that bad. And it's as if this valley of dry bones is saying, hey, make no mistake about it. Sin is deadly. It kills. It destroys. Don't be fooled. Don't allow anything to distort your view. So if for our side rear view mirrors, if it's the bend of the mirror that gives us that broad view that is the reason why things look smaller, with sin, here's what often causes things to look smaller. With sin, we use this little tool, this trick we've discovered called comparison. Where when we have comparison, what we do is, sure, I've got struggles and problems, but that guy over there, you should meet him. We're very good at spotting the speck in other people's eyes. We're very good at seeking to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, making us feel like, oh, my problems aren't really that big of a deal, by comparing our problems to people who visibly we think their problems are worse than ours. You say, Justin, how do you know that? Because I do it. 
Comparison kills. It causes us to minimize our sin, make us brush it off as though it's not a big deal. All the while, the tempter who invited you into that destructive behavior laughs all the way as you make no big deal about it. Our sin is more deadly than we think it is. It will seek to destroy. It will damage our relationships. It will cause our minds to be consumed with things it ought not be consumed with. The lust, the greed, the selfishness, the pride, the envy. And what we do is, well, all sorts of people at work do this, so what's the big deal? Well, I know a bunch of guys that this is what they do when nobody else is around, so what's the big deal? I know a number of ladies who have this kind of emotional relationship with someone who's not their spouse. What's the big deal? And so our comparison not just minimizes our sin, but we think it excuses it because, well, there's strength in numbers, right? And all the while, Ezekiel's placed in this vision of dry bones, and God is saying, Ezekiel, this is the state of my people. Sin is a big deal. It is deadly. And we think I can tame it. We think we can train it like a pet teach it tricks, put it in its cage, train it when it's okay to come out, train it when it's time to go bye-bye, have it on a leash, teach it to heal and sit when we think. But sin doesn't work that way. Sin is not a pet you tame. It's a beast you slay because its desire is to take your life. Its desire is to have you. And so don't mistake it. I don't know what you've got going on in your life. I don't know what struggles you deal with. But the way to finding freedom and the way to experiencing life is to first face the sting of realizing my sin is more deadly than I think it is. And before things turn for better, before we experience the healing and the hope, we take one step down and it stings even more. Look at the next verse, verse three. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Now, Ezekiel is called a number of times in the book of Ezekiel, son of man. It's a phrase that's often used to label him. It's a title that's given to him. And this term, son of man, simply emphasizes the humanity of Ezekiel. He's a son of man. He's a human being like us. And sometimes when we read characters in the Bible, particularly, we can read about them and be like, you know, we think that they walked around with halos on their heads. We think they're like superheroes, like they're Superman and all sorts of these different heroes that glided around and did these great things. But son of man is a title given to Ezekiel that emphasizes, no, he was just like us in many ways. He had fears. He had moments where his faith was tested and where he was unsure. Ezekiel was a man. And so God says to him, son of man, can these bones live? Now, anytime we read God asks someone a question in the Bible, anytime God asks a person a question, he's not doing it because he's in need of some information that he has no access to. He's not saying, hey, Ezekiel, help me out, bro. I just am not so sure. The angels, I was talking it over with them. We couldn't figure it out. So what do you think? That's not what's happening. Ezekiel goes, uh, God goes to Ezekiel and he says, hey, son of man, can these bones live? Make no mistake about it, when God asks a question, he has something that the person who's supposed to answer is going to discover by being forced to answer the question. And Ezekiel, the thought process in his mind, can these bones live? And maybe Ezekiel takes a moment and looks at the valley and he sees there's a lot of these bones. 
Maybe he goes down and inspects them more closely and he says, wow, they're very dry. And Ezekiel turns to God and says, God, you know. I certainly don't know, but you know. That question, can these bones bones live, brings us to the limitations of our humanity. That we are these dry bones and we can't do anything to fix our situation. We can't save ourselves. Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's forced to say, God, that's for you to know. I can't do anything about this. God, oh God, you know. And he tells him this. And so here's the second truth that this brings us to. The second truth we've got to embrace. Number one was, my sin is more deadly than I think it is. Number two is I don't have the power to save myself. I don't have the power to save myself. This is us going deeper into the sting, deeper down into the valley. Not only is our problem so dire that a valley full of dead, dry bones is a picture of our situation, but the reality is we can do nothing about it. Dry bones don't have anything to offer. Dry bones are not something that you make into a fixer-upper. You can put makeup on dry bones, you can give them a makeover, you can get some nice clothes, buy some expensive stuff to put on dry bones, and they're still dead. This question, can these bones live, brings us to the point of our limitations, and God then speaks and says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? This past uh, weekend, I was with some family in Lakeland, and we went and visited in a nearby town this I don't know what to describe it, this phenomena called the Strawberry Festival. Has anybody been to the Strawberry Festival? Anybody? A few of you. Okay. All right. Strawberry Festival. Okay. For those of you who have never been to the Strawberry Festival, it's nothing like what it sounds. Nothing. Okay. You go, and I envisioned like this beautiful lush farm, right, with like children frolicking, strawberry picking, you know, and, and just wide open spaces. But this is what the Strawberry Festival is. It's this place where you go and you park, you pay to park, $10 to park, okay? And then you walk about eight miles and you go to the entrance and you pay $10 to enter these fairgrounds. You pay $10 to park to pay $10 to enter. And the entrance actually doesn't get you anything. You're just allowed in, yay, right? So you go in and then you get to pay $15 for fried anything. You name it, you can fry it, it's there, okay? And it's this massive carnival. With, with Ferris wheels and those crazy rides that you, you think that cannot be to code, okay? All of those rides that have 18 diseases from the last places that it's been to, all of that griminess, and there is a crowd full of people. Like, these people love their strawberries, okay? It is slam full, and it was, it was very, it was not pleasant, okay? My wife was, she wasn't having it. Uh, we were just like, wow, I was expecting so much more. I just want some strawberries, okay? And we went through this, and one of the attractions they had, one of the attractions they had was one of those fun houses. You know what I'm talking about? It's creepy, fun houses. So you climb up some ladders, and there's this area where there's all these mirrors. And some of the mirrors are like the mirrors that make you short and plump, you know, so that you look like that. And then other mirrors are the ones that stretch you really long. And then there's always that cute three-year-old kid who's standing in front of that mirror and he looks taller than his dad, and they take a picture, and the boy's like, you know, like this, and the dad's like, oh, this is so cute. And uh, anyway, so that mirror, I want you to think about uh, that mirror uh, in a similar way to what we just talked about with the side mirror in your car. Pause for a moment. 
side mirror from our cars. Remember, the way that it works is it gives you a wider perspective of what's behind you, but the side effect is that it makes what's actually behind you look smaller than it is. But this mirror functions differently. This mirror makes you look taller and bigger than what it is. And so if the side mirror that makes things smaller really reflects our problem with our sin, this mirror that makes us look bigger than we actually are, what that mirror ends up looking like is that is a picture of how we view our righteousness. We think it's bigger. We think our willpower is stronger. I can, I can be disciplined. I've got more. I'm, I'm bigger and badder and I can do no matter what. We think that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do whatever is necessary. And so we view our righteousness, our moral willpower, our goodness. We think, I can fix myself. I can take care of this situation. I'm a fixer. That's what I like to do. When someone has a problem, I'm immediately thinking of a solution. How can I fix this? A valley full of dry bones puts me in a spot where I can't do anything. I don't have the power to save myself. Ezekiel's brought down. God asks him this question. Hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is faced with this reality. God, you're the one who has to know because I can't. You see, many people have sought to make it so, but the Bible simply will not allow us to reduce Christianity to self-improvement. It won't allow us to. It's not about dressing up and making us look a little bit better from the outside in. The gospel that Jesus came to proclaim is not a gospel that just modifies some behavior and puts some makeup on some dead bones. Jesus came to do something unique. He came to raise dead bones to life. We need transformation. We need a new heart. Our heart of stone needs to be transformed into a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. Our dead bones need to be made to life, Ezekiel 37. And so we're in a powerless spot. And so no matter what you come in here with, no matter what's going on in your life, know this. God's intention for you is to come to the place where you realize your sin is deadly, that you can't do anything to fix yourself. But that opens up the door for the miracle. That opens up the door for something to happen to these dry bones that they could not do for themselves. And that brings us to Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 4 through 6. Read these with me. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 through 6. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's response to Ezekiel saying, you know what, Ezekiel, that's the right response. Oh Lord God, you know if these bones can live. That is the right response, Ezekiel. And so God looks down at this valley full of dry bones and he tells Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prophesy. I want you to declare my word over these dead, dry bones, the house of Israel that has gone dead because of their sin. I want you to speak my word over them, and I want you to declare to these dry bones that they must come to life, that skin must come around them, that their joints must be restored, and that breath will enter them, and that they will be this mighty army. That's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. 
And so this right here, this brings us to the third truth, the glorious truth we need to believe and embrace. Number one was my sin is more deadly than I think it is. Number two makes the problem worse. We can't do anything to save ourselves. I can't save myself. But number three, the power of life is in the word of God. He speaks. He declares his word and bones come to life. And so Ezekiel right here, He's commanded, hey, Ezekiel, speak my word, declare my word over these dry bones. I love how this vision gives us this imagery. Use your imagination. You're there. And God looks at this valley full of dry bones and he says, hey, you know what these bones need? They need a word from me. You know what this situation needs right now? They need a word. And I honestly believe there there's some of you who came and found yourself in church today, some of you listening online. And what you need more than anything else is you need a word from God. You need God to speak and declare something over your life. Because here's what happens when God speaks. When God says something, he creates it. Genesis chapter 1, we read the the account of creation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. If God, by his sheer word, can speak to nothingness and create something, if God can say out of nothingness and say, hey, plants, go on and rise up. If he can say out of nothingness, hey, galaxies, go ahead and pop up. If he can speak and create things, then surely God can take some dead, dry bones and raise them to life. Declare my word over these bones. Declare my word over what is dead and hopeless and full of despair and watch it come to life. So Ezekiel is commanded to speak and declare the word of God. The power of life is in the word of God. And did you notice when God tells Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, You speak to these dry bones, and here's what I want you to say. Say, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I love that God tells him, hey, keep the part in there about them being dry. Like, include the fact that they're not just dead. They're really dead. They've been dead for a while. Include that. This situation is terrible. Your problem is bad. And speak to those dry bones that life will come on them. See, sometimes what we try and do when our problems mount... When our struggles surface, we just try and minimize them and think, you know what, I'm just not going to think about it. And we try and minimize our problems and say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. But that's not the way to hope. The way to hope is not let me minimize my view of my problems. The, minim- the way to hope is let me magnify the view of my God. Let me magnify his power that he can speak and dry bones can come to life. So speak to those problems as they are. Be honest about those struggles. Be honest about our sin being deadlier than we think it is. But with that honest admission, we then open ourselves up for the miracle that God intends to breathe into our lives. Christian brothers and sisters, this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Don't miss this valley of dry bones imagery. Don't miss what God was communicating to Ezekiel Sure, God had intended for this to have some level of fulfillment when he would bring his people back to their promised land, but really they never got to experience the kind of life that's insinuated here. What Ezekiel is ultimately pointing to is the fact that one day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come down, enter into our world, come down into our valley, and look at humanity in all of its deadness. The Apostle Paul would describe it in Ephesians 2 as, spiritually dead we were dead in our trespasses and sins and jesus christ comes and he speaks a word of life to dead dry bones he comes and he lives among us 
he dies for our sin, taking on the sting of death himself. And Jesus, on the cross, pays the punishment for all of our wrongs, all of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of our envy. Jesus paid it all for us. And three days after his death on the cross, his atoning death that paid for all of our sins, three days later, Jesus rose up from the grave, proving that death could not hold him. This is your story, Christian, that you were dead in the valley of dry bones, but then Jesus came and spoke life over you. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we get to be sharers. We get to partake in that glorious victory over death, just like our Savior was. That is our story. So I want to give you some homework. Christian brothers and sisters, here's some homework. Sometime today, before the day runs out, I want you to spend some time, get a paper and pen. I did this this morning. And I want you to write down all of your sin struggles, all of them, and be honest. I mean, if it's just between you and God, there's no need to try and make light of them. Be honest. From where you're lacking integrity, from where you're being selfish, from where there's something, there's maybe a secret life that you've tried to hide. Be honest, open up about your sin. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take that list of sins, be thorough, be real, be raw, and then I want you to cross out every single one of those sins and then in big, bold letters write, paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus on the cross, Colossians reminds us that our sin, our wrongs, were nailed to our Savior on the cross. He paid for all of them. Those things no longer define you. And so then write forgiven because that defines you. Our sin, our brokenness was paid for by our Savior on the cross. And so when you have that list, you write that as an act of worship. Give praise and thanks to a God who looks down on dry bones, raises us to life, and then when we fool around and start acting like dry bones again, says, hey, I'm not giving up on you. He forgives us and cleanses us and washes us. And so with gratitude, say, Jesus, thank you for your sweet forgiveness that I don't deserve such sweet grace. Thank you. And then say this, help me to not be defined by these things anymore. Give me the strength, Holy Spirit, to walk in freedom and not to walk in these chains that I might go and pursue you and live for you. And watch as God provides the strength, brings community of Christian brothers and sisters to help walk with you through whatever struggles you have. Because my sin is more deadly than I think it is. And I don't have the power to save myself. But the power of life is in the word of God. And Jesus has spoken these words over every one of his followers. He has spoken, forgiven, redeemed, made new, alive, my child. That's what he's spoken over you. And when God speaks, he creates. It's true. And so do that. As an act of worship today, have that time of confession. And the beautiful thing about confession, sometimes it's so intimidating. We, don't, we feel like, oh, I don't want to be honest about my struggles. I can't go before God with all that I've got wrong. Here's the thing about confession. When we believe the gospel, confession inevitably leads to praise. Because being honest about our sin makes us realize, wow, my Savior is that great that he paid for me. He died for me, knowing good and well all of this. So take that time today to do just that. Now, I want to read Ezekiel 37. This is the last bit of Ezekiel we'll read in our time this morning. Read verse 7 with me. It says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Now, let me pause before I read the next part of this verse. Here's what this is saying. After God says to Ezekiel, hey, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, God, you know. 
And then God says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to talk to these dry bones and declare my word over them, make them come alive. Then it says Ezekiel started to actually do it. He started speaking to these dry bones. Now, I don't know what this looked like. Use your imagination. Maybe he's like, hey, dry bones, I've got a word for you. And he starts declaring this word over them. And then look what happens next. So he's speaking these words, declaring, come alive, dry bones. And here's what verse 7 continues to say. As I prophesied, as I was commanded, uh, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. Stuff started to shake. Things started to sound, and you'll have to come back next week to find out <laughs> what happens next. So, next week, you'll have to see, or you can read ahead. And, uh, but you do not want to miss next week. You're about to see God do the impossible. And if this week we learned that we are these dry bones, that we are these dry bones that need God to make us alive, next week we're going to learn that we are actually in some ways like Ezekiel, called to go out in our world and speak life. So I hope you can be here with us next week. Now, before we close our time, I want to speak to my non-Christian friends, to my friends here who maybe you came at the invitation of someone, a neighbor, a family member, maybe you're tuning in online and you're not a follower of Jesus. I want to draw your attention back to where we started our time this morning. We started by saying there seems to be this pattern in life where oftentimes when something has gone wrong and we have a problem, be it an illness or a scraped knee, that the remedy that brings us healing often has a sting. And I want to point you and draw your attention to the true healing and the true remedy we all need. And that is that we are all like these dry bones in the valley. We are spiritually dead and in need of a Savior who can come and make us alive. But that remedy, the way in which we experience life, came with a sting. Jesus, the Son of God, takes our punishment on himself. Jesus Christ on the cross took your shame and your guilt on himself, and he died for you, and he calls you to trust in him that what he did counts for you, that he took away the penalty that our sins deserve, that the wrath that should have been pointed at us was pointed at the Son of God, and Jesus, taking the sting of death himself, offers us the remedy of eternal life. And if you'll turn to him, if today you'll trust in him and say, Jesus, I believe you did for me what I could not do. You took away my guilt and my shame. You died for me and you rose for me. And today I put my trust in you. If you'll do that today, your forever will be changed. Your eternity will be changed. And you'll now be defined by what God has spoken over you. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. I want to close with the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. I wonder if Jesus had Ezekiel 37 in mind as he said these words. Look at John chapter 5, verses 24 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying the hour has come when the Son of God, when Jesus Christ will speak and the dead will hear. Dry bones come to life. 
If you will receive the Son, He will set you free and He will restore you to the life that God intends for you to live. A life defined by His words spoken over you, not the words that the world would try and heap on you. Not the shame that you would try and heap on yourself. Not the guilt that the devil, the enemy would try and ensue on you, but instead be defined by the salvation and forgiveness that Jesus wants to speak over you. And so I leave you with Jesus' words. Whoever hears his word and believes in him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Maybe that's you. And if today you're ready to receive that free gift, the remedy we all need, then right now I want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Take a quiet moment of response between you and God. If today you're realizing for the first time my sin is deadlier than I think it is and I can't save myself but today I'm ready to open myself up to the power of God to save and restore dead dry bones if today's your day of salvation where you're ready to reach out to Jesus only to find that he's been reaching out to you this whole time then right now where you are, you can say these words to God. Make this your prayer to God in your own heart. Say this to God. Say, God, I need you. God, today I confess that I need a Savior. Thank you for providing that Savior in Jesus. I turn from my sins and I turn towards you. I put my hope in you. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for those here today who maybe come in with sin that's heavy and weighing on them. For those who are followers of Jesus, I pray that they would realize that God is, God, you've called us to life. Help us when we start acting like dry bones again. Help us to realize you're calling us back to life. I pray that today they would realize their forgiveness was secure at the cross of Christ and that that grace would motivate them to go and sin no more. Help us, Lord, to rely on your word, to receive your, your power, that we might be overcomers. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us, and we pray this in your perfect name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.